to turn, if you have a copy of Scripture, to Exodus chapter 2. We have only looked at the first chapter in this sermon series in the second book in the Bible. And we are looking this evening at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that account of the birth and the preservation of the old covenant redeemer, Moses. And so if you have your copy of scripture, I know you're going to find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with me this evening. We're looking at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And this is God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine, or a, the Hebrew is hard to translate, a good or beautiful or special child, I know I just gave you a whole bunch of options there, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and woman and took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the name of John Newton, the great pastor and theologian and hymn writer. And some, perhaps many of you, are familiar with the name of his dear friend, William Cooper, spelled Cowper. Apparently pronounced Cooper. I didn't know that for a long time. But William Cowper was an extremely depressed individual. He had what the old theologians and writers used to call melancholy. And Cooper had tried to take his life on numerous occasions. He he found the darkness of his depression and despair, what the old theologians used to call the dark night of the soul, too great to bear. And so what Newton did was, in order to encourage his dear friend that he had pastored and counseled so much and tried to help so much to bring out of this despair, was that he set out on writing a project of hymns uh, that he would write with Cooper, and those hymns would become known as the Alney hymns. Now, you may only know a few of those. The, The most famous of those is Amazing Grace. And... That was one that Newton wrote. And the other most famous of those hymns was written by Cooper, and that was God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We're going to sing that hymn tonight. I'm going to read to you just a few words from that. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps 
in the sea and rides them on the storm. I love this line, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. And that hymn always reminds me of God's dealings with his people, especially in the book of Genesis, at the end of Genesis, with that account of Joseph and what his brothers did to him leading up to that great verse, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and, and then bleeding over into this account in Exodus, now that Joseph is dead, now that the children of Israel have multiplied, now that there's a new Pharaoh and there is persecution, and that Pharaoh has sought to oppress the children of Israel by putting them to servile labor and making them slaves, and yet that not working, the more he oppressed them, the, chapter 1 says, the more they grew, and, and so then he diabolically told all the midwives to kill all the male children in Israel so that if slavery would not work, abortion might work and genocide might work. And when that didn't work, because God raised up those two Hebrew midwives and, and they were delivering the babies, Pharaoh's anger was enraged all the more. And so he made an edict that all the male uh, infant babies born in Israel should be drowned in the Nile. And that is, the, that is the darkness in which Israel is now finding itself oppressed. Um, now, I, I would imagine if we were an Israelite living at that time and we knew the covenant promises God gave to Abraham, that he was going to give him this land, that the nations were going to be blessed in him, that he was going to make him a people more numerous than the sand on the sea in number, and we knew the covenant Lord had given these great promises to Abraham, greater promises than he ever gave to anyone, we would be in that situation and we would be tempted to fall into deep darkness and despair. Why is this happening? Why are we being oppressed? Why are we having to live in fear? Why, why, why is all of this, this malice and murderous hatred being aimed against us? Where is the covenant Lord and where are his promises? And it's interesting because that is the question that we're supposed to ask when we come to the early chapters of Exodus. And what we see as we come into these chapters is that while Israel is in this dark and dangerous circumstance in Egypt, God's fingerprints are in all of the details of what he is doing. I noted the first sermon that the book of Exodus is more about God than it is about Moses. Now, Moses is going to become a prominent figure. We're going to see much about him. In fact, it could be rightly argued that from Adam to Christ, there is no more important figure other than perhaps Abraham than Moses. Moses is the Old Covenant Redeemer. He is the Old Covenant Mediator. We're going to see tonight that he is born a Levite. That means that he is in the priestly line. He is also a prophet. It can be argued that he was also functioning as a king. And so he is the greatest of the old covenant figures representing Christ as a mediator among the people of God and as a deliverer who is going to bring about the redemption. And what we're going to see in this chapter tonight is the beginning of God's preservation and preparing of Moses to be the old covenant mediator and ultimately to be a type of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want us to just continue, consider two things tonight. First, 
In this dark situation, I want us to consider first the family of faith, and then I want us to consider the overruling God, the family of faith and the overruling God. We'll notice that uh, Moses himself recording this says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, one of the first things that you may not notice is that here is presumably a young Israelite man and a young Israelite woman. There is already the threat of any children that they might have being killed, and yet they are obeying the covenant Lord. They are coming together in marriage, and they are coming together in order to be fruitful and multiply. They are doing the thing that God commanded them. They are doing what God told Abraham to do. They are doing what they know is pleasing to the covenant Lord because God wants a people to fill the face of the earth to bring him glory as righteous and holy worshipers. And so despite the threat, despite the fear, they are going to walk by faith and they are going to by faith obey the covenant Lord. Now there's... There's a word here for us, I think, and there will be a word here for us in just a moment. It's easy to look around at a dark and wicked world and to just sort of turn in on yourself, try to sort of escape by isolating. Um, I I have heard well-meaning Christians even say things like, I mean, I don't know if I want to bring children into this world. Well, listen, Egypt was way worse than what we're living in. And here are two Israelite believers from the tribe of Levi, and they are obeying the covenant Lord, and they are coming together, and she has conceived, and she has a son. Now, she knows what's at stake. One writer has said, I I would imagine that it might have, Passed her mind while she was pregnant. I really hope it's a daughter. Because she knows the threat if she has a son. And this woman and this man, they disobey the king because they act in faith. Now, how do we know that? Because the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, and you can turn over there with me if you want in your copy of scripture. Hebrews 11, 23, the great faith chapter And in the introduction of Moses in that long history of redemption of all the great figures in the hall of faith leading up to the Lord Jesus, all these examples of those who walk by faith in the covenant Lord and the promise of redemption, notice verse 23, and and this is more about Moses' parents than about Moses. Notice this, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden. Now, Moses did not have faith to hide himself. His parents had faith. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months because they saw that he was beautiful, or the Greek word is probably better translated special, and they were not afraid of the king's command. There are two things here. There is the people of God trusting the God of promise, and there are the people of God not fearing the wrath of unbelieving, powerful human beings. Now, before I say anything else, let me say this, that faith is always a response to God's word. 
it's never a sort of generic hoping that things might be good and a sort of George Michael just got to have faith. It is a very specific response to what God has said in his word, to the promises of God, and it is saying, I believe the God of promise. I'm going to act on that. Remember, in Hebrews 11, the writer says, Abraham had the promises of God that he's going to be a great nation, that all the nations are going to be blessed in his seed, that, that, that in, in Isaac, the nations are going to be blessed, and then God says, offer up Isaac. And, and what does Abraham do? The writer of Hebrews says he reasoned, he reasoned, he concluded that God was able to even raise Isaac from the dead. He knew the certainty of the promise. God has said, I'm going to bless the nations in Isaac. Now God says, kill Isaac, and as he walks up to offer Isaac on the altar, Abraham is acting in faith. He doesn't know if God's going to stop him. He doesn't know that an angel's going to come, and he doesn't know he's going to be given a substitute ram in the thicket. But what he knows is that the God of promise has said, I am going to do this, and if he has said that, then even if I offer him up, God must be able to raise him from the dead and fulfill those promises. You see, faith is always a rational understanding of the revelation of God, and it is a spiritual response saying, I believe what God has said, and though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And here, Moses' parents are doing that very thing. They know what the king has said, but they know the promises of God. Now, this passage has caused people issues because in our English translations, it said that they saw that their son was a beautiful child. And, you know, we could conclude wrongly that he was just a better-looking baby than other babies. And we need to save all the good-looking babies and not all the babies. And that would not be a right biblical exposition. Now, what, what does it mean? They saw he was a They saw that he was a beautiful child. The word is often translated good, a good child. And sometimes, and in the Greek, that word in Hebrews 11.23 is a special child. I think there are two things at play here. The Puritans used to say that because they were responding in faith, God must have revealed something to them about this child. Just like an angel came to Mary... And before her to Elizabeth, there must have been some revelation to Moses' parents that God was going to do something special in this child. And they saw that he was a special child, and they saw that he was good. Now, here's what's fascinating, and you have to listen very carefully. The word good there is the same word that we find in the creation account in Genesis 1. When God creates the world... And he saw that it was good. It's the same phraseology. They saw that he was good child. And I think we are meant in some way to tie together. Here is the one who is going to bring about a typical new creation. Here is the one who's going to bring his people through the water on the dry land. Here is the one that's going to bring them out as a redeemed people. Here is the one who's, gonna, who's going to bring forward as the representative leader the people of God who have been brought out of bondage. And it is a great work of redemption that God is going to undertake. 
And, and there, there are undertones of new creation, even in the birth of Moses. Now, we don't know what Moses' parents knew in total, but we knew that they knew there was something different about him and that his mother hid him for three months. Um, his mother, very interestingly, takes him to the very place where he was to be destroyed. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's the least likely place you would take your baby if you were trying to spare your baby. Um, she has hidden him for three months, and just as an aside, great acts of faith are often unseen by the world. We like to put everything out there for everybody to see. And we think the great acts of faith are getting out there and telling governments how wicked they are on social media. Here, the great act of faith is just hiding this baby in secret. No one else knows, but God knows. They're disobeying the edict of the king. The king has commanded them to sin. They have said, we will trust the Lord rather than fear men. And they have hidden this baby until they could hide him no longer. And then the mother secretly creates an ark of bulrush and puts tar inside it and puts a cover on it and places the baby in the Nile in the very place where Pharaoh had commanded that the babies be destroyed. Now, I noted already that there are new creation undertones in the allusion to Moses being good and the parents seeing that there was something good about him. Um, there are also redemptive undertones in the fact that he is said to be placed in an ark. There are only two times in all of Scripture that this exact word is used, and it is of the Ark of the Covenant, and it is of the ark that Moses has put in. And in both cases, the people of God are saved in the ark on the waters of destruction. You see, you're meant to see that parallel. One writer um, is linking together all the parallels between, um, between Moses and Christ and, and the ark and the ark with Noah and the ark with Moses and how both of them are pointing to Christ. And just as God saves Noah through the waters and destroys his enemies, so he's now going to save his people by redeeming his old covenant mediator in the waters, the very waters, remember, in which um, God is going to plague and give a foretaste of the destruction of judgment in the Red Sea because of what Pharaoh did, killing the baby boys in the water. God is going to bring salvation through judgment. And, and Christ is the ark, and he goes through the waters of baptism, and, and ultimately he goes through the flood waters of God's wrath on the cross, and, and everyone in him is safe. That's not hyper-spiritualizing. By the way, the history of Protestantism that actually, like theology, always taught this stuff, always. Jesus is the ark. Noah was in the ark. Moses was in the ark. Christ is in the ark. Um, uh, Umberto Casuto says this, this is certainly not a mere coincidence that Moses, that Moses is in an ark. He says, by this verbal parallelism, scripture apparently intends to draw attention to the thematic analogy. In both instances, with Noses, Noah and Moses, 
One worthy of being saved and destined to bring salvation to others is to be rescued from death by drowning. In the earlier section, the salvation of humanity is involved. With Noah, God is saving humanity. With Moses, he says, it is the salvation of the chosen people. God is focusing in on what he's going to do with his church now. Not just saving humanity in the ark with Noah, but saving a church for himself by saving Moses. Now, in all of this, we are seeing that God is overruling what's happening. Um, Much like we see in the book of Esther and in other portions of the scripture, God doesn't seem prominent in this chapter. It seems as if the family of faith is doing all that they're doing. And yet it is God overruling, and now we start to see those details emerge, don't we, of of the quote-unquote coincidences that keep seeming to happen every step of the way. Notice this, that we read in verse... Um, We read in verse 4 that Miriam, Moses' sister, went down and stood to watch him. And notice verse 5. It just so happens that the daughter of the very man who is trying to destroy all the male children of Israel and Satan being behind him, trying to stomp out the kingdom of Christ, that that very man's daughter just so happens to be at the bank when Moses' sister is there and the baby is there. And... Notice that we're told the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it and when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Now, in God's sovereign providence, the daughter of the one who had commanded that they drown all the male children, Hebrew children in the Nile, has compassion on this Hebrew child. She would have seen that he was uncircumcised. She would have known that he was a Hebrew child. And yet the very daughter of the one trying to destroy has compassion, and God is going to cause her to be a safe place for him, where he will be nurtured, where he will be prepared to become God's old covenant mediator and redeemer. This is an interesting thought. Listen to this. Uh, One old writer said, Moses is spared by being cast onto the very Nile that was to drown him. He is treated with maternal kindness by the daughter of the very king who had condemned him and to whose descendants he would become a nemesis. And now, notice, he is assigned as a responsibility with pay to the one woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him. It's absolutely astonishing. Miriam rushes over to Pharaoh's daughter and says, do you want a Hebrew woman to nurse the child? She says, yes. She gets his mother, and his mother gets to raise him for a time, several years, no doubt, probably three, and she gets paid for it. Now, I am certain that no one saw this coming. And I am certain that while the majority of Israelites were wringing their hands, that that God was giving indicators to Moses' mother and his family that I I am in charge of sparing my people and protecting my people and doing what I am doing in my people. And there is a word there for us that 
and I know you've heard this, but until God is finished with you, nothing can happen to you apart from what he is going to do to preserve you and use you. You see this played out in the Apostle Paul's life and all the beatings and the shipwrecks and yet all the deliverances, all the providences, all the mysterious things that happen. But until God is finished with us, not one single thing can happen to keep him from using us. And that is a great and comforting thought to us. Here, the sovereign Lord is orchestrating all of his plan. He's overruling everything. You know, it's interesting that, um, that this, this infant son who was subject to Pharaoh's decree, um, he'll become the very instrument of Pharaoh's destruction. Isn't that interesting? The very son who is subject to Pharaoh's decree is going to become the instrument of Pharaoh's destruction. Now, God is also preparing, not just protecting, but preparing Moses for what he's going to call him to. And we see this in that he is being raised in the home of his godly mother. Why would that matter? Well, there is a covenantal nurturing that happens to Moses. How, how do you think Moses knew when he grew up? How do, how do you think he forsook the riches of Egypt because he treasured the reward of Christ and the sufferings of Christ, greater riches? How do you think he knew all of the revelation God had given his people? I'm going to go out on a limb and guess his mother taught him. In the home, during those early formative years, no doubt she would have visited him in the palace. And where would Moses have been taught about the great covenant promises of God? He would have been taught them by his godly mother. And there is a word there for us. There's a word there. You know, the Bible says, raise up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. And we see that played out marvelously in Moses's life. Even though God is sovereign, God uses means. Um, the old writer E.M. Bounds wrote a book on prayer, and he said, God doesn't need better methods, he needs better men. You could just as easily say he needs godly families to be at work in the lives of those that he is going to use by nurturing them, training them, teaching them to fear him, teaching them his word, teaching them the gospel, teaching them the promises. The covenant Lord is nurturing Moses in the very home that he was intended to be nurtured in. Really awesome thought. Well, I want us to consider that in God overruling all these things, that even though we see this in the account in Exodus, and we see the destruction of the Egyptians, and we know the end of this story, the story continues. And we are meant to understand that this story is pointing us on. And very interesting, when we come to the Gospels, when, when the story, when redemptive history comes to a climax, there is another child. There is another son given to us. There is another child that God is preparing to be the redeemer. There is one who is going to be a greater than Moses. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 says that, while Moses was the servant in the house of God, Christ is worthy of greater glory than Moses because he is the son over the house because he built the house. And, and he comes as a child. And as a child, 
he, he, is, he has to flee into Egypt, and then he's brought out of Egypt. And remember, Herod has, has put out an edict that all the male children in Bethlehem should be killed two years old and under. They're, they're striking parallels. When we read about Moses, we are meant to understand that he is a savior, but he is not the savior. That there is yet another to whom he was just pointing. Um, how do we know that? Because Moses wasn't allowed to enter in the promised land. Um, we learn at the end of his life, this is not the one. There is another. And though there are striking similarities, there is one who is infinitely greater than Moses, who's going to deliver his people from sin and Satan and death and judgment by his exodus on the cross. I want to read to you just briefly what Phil Riken wrote. He said, a little child was born in Bethlehem, a child worthy of greater honor than Moses. He was no ordinary child. He was the son of God incarnate. This extraordinary baby was born in human history during the days of Caesar Augustus when he sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed like Moses. The boy was given the name to match his destiny. They called him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Like Moses, the Savior was born under a death sentence. Herod the Great, a tyrant as wicked as any of the pharaohs, was determined to put the newborn king to death. At first, he tried to do it secretly, asking the wise men to tell him where Jesus was. When that deadly plan failed, Herod ordered his soldiers openly to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem. But in salvation, God triumphs over evil. In salvation, God triumphs over evil evil. Riken says, so like Moses, Jesus was delivered from death. While the other babies were crushed by the engines of state, the child who was born to save us all escaped to Egypt. Now, what lays behind um, Pharaoh's animosity? We talked about this the last time. It is Satan seeking to destroy the kingdom of Christ. And, and the good news is that no matter how much the evil one rages, no matter how much the nations rage, no matter how much rulers rage against the Lord Jesus and his people, God will always triumph over evil in redemption. Now, that may not come in the deliverances that we would hope it would come in in the here and now, but it's going to come in the last day. How does God deliver you from the oppression of the evil one? He's going to raise you up on the last day. That's going to be the great deliverances of deliverances. That's going to be the great exodus of exoduses. And what God is doing in Moses, what God's doing in Moses' family, what's all unfolding here is all meant to give us confidence and hope. Um, you know, it's very likely, I'll close with this, I have had hard seasons in my life and have been able to look back after them and to see how wonderfully God was orchestrating good in what others meant for ill. Um, sometimes it takes years. I know for some people it takes decades. Some people never learn to see it. Um, but like Cooper said, um, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. 
and behind a frowning providence, there's always a smiling face of God toward his people. Because of what Christ has done, because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, because Jesus has accomplished redemption, no matter what dark seasons we go through, we can have confidence that God is working out his plan and that he's doing good for his people and his church. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have written this portion of scripture for our comfort and consolation, that we, through the hope of the gospel, might have strong consolation in Christ. We do pray that you would remind us, Lord, that you are sovereign over every Uh, thought, word, and action, that you are sovereign over all the actions of all of your creatures, that there is nothing outside of your control, that you have ordained the end from the beginning, that even when you put your people in difficult situations, yet you are orchestrating your plan. And we pray that you would give us such trust in your promises and in the Lord Jesus and in the fact that he has finished the work of redemption. Would you increase our faith? that we may be able to do what is pleasing to you when those hard times come. Father in heaven, we pray that you would build us up in the faith, that you would help us to glean great instruction, even from the way Moses' family feared you and took steps to do what is pleasing to you. And so, our God, would you remind us of your sovereign love, and your sovereign purposes in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.